0: Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. According to a uh, recent article in scientificamerican.com, the self-help industry, the the self-actualization movement has actually become an 8.5 billion, with a B, Eight and a half billion dollar a year industry. That's a lot of money. <laughs> you go to Barnes and Noble or one of these bookstores and you go to the self-help section, it's like the biggest section in the whole store. There are numerous books being written about how to, how to make your life better. Uh, it seems like every other year or so another fad diet comes out or a new diet pill, you know, weight loss pill comes around. Um, There are self-actualization seminars all over the country being offered all the time. We are in this whole thing about improvement. We want to change. And that is, by the way, that is unique to the human species. And no other species on on all creation cares about improving themselves. You don't see dogs signing up for better living through stick-fetching seminars. You know, you just don't see that. Of course, cats... They don't think they need improving. You know, they're God, they're perfect already. But humans, we are always in this process of change. We're always in this process of, of improving our lives. We long for it. It is part of how God created us. Because we're created in His image. And So we always want to be a part of this growing process becoming more and more like Him. And if it's not improving ourselves, then it's improving our surroundings. You know, one of my, I have, it's a kind of a guilty pleasure. I love watching these um, house restoration TV programs, you know? Like way, way back, it was Bob Vila with, um, uh, what was the name of it? This old house. I used to watch that program all the time. And my wife would say, this is the most boring program on TV. But I loved it. I love it. now there's like five or six different programs on there. Flip this house, flip that house, flip all these houses. I don't know, you know? That, that, that is my life. You see, that's what I did as a kid. When, when I was growing up as a kid, that's what my parents did. My dad was a building contractor. He would buy all these rundown, beat-up, condemned homes. And we as kids, our whole family, that was a family project. Every Saturday, we would work on these beat-up homes. You know, and then they would keep track of our hours. And when the house sold, we got our cut of the pro- Well, we didn't get a cut of the profit. We got like a dollar an hour, you know, cheap labor, childhood labor. Um, but that was my life. You know, I just love seeing before and afters. I just love that whole process of transformation. And as a church, we're committed to that. In fact, the life of a Christ follower is is a life of transformation. It is all about growth and development and transformation. Paul described it this way to the Galatian church. In chapter 4, he said, My dear children, I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's what God's doing. He's building His character into our life. And as a church, we are committed to that. It's why we exist. We exist together to help each other in this transformation process. But one of the things that we made very, very clear from the very, very beginning, and we have stayed with it, and we will have to stay with it, is that we are committed to grace-based transformation. Not superficial conforming, but grace-based life transformation. It's what Paul wrote about in chapter 2, in his letter to the Galatians. He says, we know that man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. He said there was only one way to experience real transformation. The Bible uses terms like righteousness, justification, sanctification. They all have to do with this process of transformation. And he said there's only one way that that happens. And we as a church must be crystal clear about this and unbending in our understanding and in our practice of this idea of grace-based transformation. He says this is what it looks like. There are certain essentials that you need to know and that you must adhere to. The first is, understand, transformation always comes from the inside out. Always. Be really, really, really clear about this. You cannot change yourself. Paul put it this way. We know a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. But By observing the law, no one will be justified. No one. That means you and me. And yet it seems like every generation of Christ followers has to kind of discover this for themselves. Because we all kind of get sucked into those traps that we talked about last week. We each think, well, we're different. We can do it. You know, just willpower. We can make the changes. But the truth is, he says, no one can. Now, to understand this, you really got to have a little bit of a, a, a background here, a little historical background. So those of you who are bored with history, bear with me. Hang in there. Because where this is all coming from is you need to understand Paul's background. He was a Pharisee. He lived his whole life trying to keep the law. In fact, most of the early church, most of the church in the first century, the initial followers of Jesus Christ were all Jewish. They were all steeped in the law. That was how you determined what made you separate from the rest of the world. And we find, in fact, a lot of history and research has been done in all of this. And James Dunn particularly has pointed out and and looked through a lot of the rabbinical writings from that first century, in, in first century Judaism that most of the rabbinical writings and teachings centered around three things. Sabbath keeping, circumcision, and dietary laws. Now, what's really interesting about that is everybody knew. Everybody knew. That's not what righteousness is all about. Everybody knew that. Remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And what he was saying was nothing new. Everybody knew that. From the youngest age, a child would learn, the very first thing they were taught to memorize was the Mishnah. Hear, O Israel, your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Everybody knew that. From the youngest child to the most learned rabbi. So why did they spend all of their time writing about things like Sabbath-keeping, circumcision, and dietary law? (laughs) Because their sense is, how do we measure if we're keeping it? How do we know if we're living up to it? And the ways that those things were determined, why? How well did you keep the Sabbath? Have you been circumcised? Do you eat what's kosher and not eat what is not kosher? And do you eat with people who are kosher or not kosher? It was all about, how do we measure this thing? Now, to kind of give that idea this morning, to kind of do that, I brought some um, props to kind of explain that a little bit. Everybody know what this is? It's a tape measure, yeah. Pull-ups, a 30-footer. I could take this all the way to the back of the room. Well, not quite. Okay? It's for measuring. It's for measuring distances, okay? I've got another measuring thing here. It's one that's a little bit hard to see. Can you tell what this is? It's a thermometer, yeah. You use this to measure your body temperature, to tell if you've got a fever or not. It serves a purpose. It's a, it's a measuring device. Um, here's one. This is a scale. That dreaded scale <laughs> that sits in your bathroom but you never really want to look at. It's a measuring device. It tells you how well you're doing on that diet, how well you're keeping up, and, and, and are you losing the weight that you want to lose. It's a measuring device. Here's another one. It's a clock. The clock is what I use to measure how long the sermon is going to be. All right? Everybody's got one of these. We're looking at it right now. Now, if I need to go and cut a board two and a half feet long, which of these measuring devices am I going to use? The clock? I don't think that would work. I would use a tape measure. If I want to know what's happening inside my body and, and if I've got a fever or not, I would use a thermometer. If I want to know how well I'm doing on my diet, I use the scale. There are all different measuring devices. The problem is, they are specific for measuring certain things. The problem in the first century was, how do we measure change? How do we measure spiritual growth? See, all of these early believers were Jewish, but now what started to happen is, Gentiles started coming into the flock. Gentiles started believing in Jesus Christ. Gentiles started following along. What are we going to do about these Gentiles? Because we know, as good Jews, how we measure it. What are we going to do about Gentiles? Are we going to make them keep to the kosher dietary laws? Are they going to be required to be circumcised? And we know what Jesus went through with the Pharisees when they came to Sabbath-keeping. So there was a really, really big question now. Now that we have discovered this life in Christ, how do we live it? How do we know if we're progressing? How do we know if we're growing? How do we know if we're really changing? And in fact, it was such a big issue that they called the council. They called the council in Jerusalem and all of the leaders of the church, the learned and knowledgeable people, the followers of Jesus, the apostles, missionaries, they all got together and they said, what are we going to do about this? And they debated it for a long time. And the final decision that they made was this. We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to Christ. In other words, the decision was, all that rule-keeping is not good. It's not the way that you measure spiritual growth. When we start measuring by externals and rule-keeping and behavior, we are distorting spirituality. And it becomes this mounting pressure to conform to other people's expectation. And conforming is not the same as transforming. And if we give in to, to conforming, and then that being the whole thing, then we miss out on real-life transformation. And this is we are all susceptible to this. Because what happened now was, Paul comes from the council of Jerusalem, he goes back to Antioch, he brings this good word to these new Gentile believers, and not much longer after that, Peter comes. Peter, one of the apostles. Peter, who was there at that Jerusalem council. And Peter comes. In fact, Peter was one of the ones that stood up and said, you know what, we're not going to get into this whole dietary law and all that kind of stuff. In fact, I had a vision from God myself that this whole kosher and non-kosher kind of stuff, that, that's the law. We got, what God has made clean, no one should call unclean. Peter was a firm believer in all of that. And yet when he comes to Antioch and he starts experiencing this freedom and starts fellowshipping with Gentile believers and, and fellowshipping around the table and eating things that were okay to eat <laughs> but not okay if you were a Jew, everything was going fine until some from Jerusalem showed up. Who were more of the legalistic type. And it says what Peter did was when, when those people showed up, he started to step back, he started to distance himself from the Gentile believers. He started not eating at table with them, not eating the foods they would eat. And he started backing up and backing up and backtracking into that whole legalistic setup. And, Peter, and Paul said, finally, when, he was, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. He was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And that was the problem. He gave in to that old way of doing stuff. And he said, I had to stand up in front of everybody and oppose him on this. Because not only was he doing it, but because other people saw him do it, Barnabas started doing the same thing. And others in the church started doing the same thing. And what happened is, the church starts to separate into the haves and the haves nots The goods and the not-so-goods. And that is destructive to the church. Transformation comes from the inside out and no other way. And if we give in to rule-keeping and behavioral changes, we are missing the boat. It's dangerous. It's dangerous stuff. Grace-based transformation happens from the inside out. Secondly, he says it comes through successes and failures. Not just our successes, but our failures are a part of the growth process too. Verse 17, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. See, the accusation came, well, if you give people too much freedom, they're going to abuse it. This freedom of grace is going to become freedom to sin. I mean, yeah, our measuring sticks are not very good, but we got to have something, because how else are we going to keep people in line? How else are we going to know? Yeah, they're inadequate. Yeah, maybe they're not the right things, but we got to have something to measure this. The truth of the matter is, when I understand grace, it makes me much more aware of my need. I come to realize how deeply the change needs to take place. When I truly begin to understand grace, I begin to understand the changes that are necessary cannot possibly be done on the surface. Because the kinds of things that God wants to do in me are far deeper than that. He writes about it a little bit later, later in the letter. He writes about it in chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, he calls them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He said, these, if you want something to measure, these are the things you should be measuring. These are the things that you should be paying attention to. Well, how do you know how you're doing in those kinds of things? Well, I kind of put together a little kind of a self-test for you this morning, all right? So if you take your papers out and write numbers one through nine down there along the column there, just one column, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Number one is love, okay? How do you know? Now, we're going to go easy on you. When, When I was in grade school, like kindergarten... We didn't get A, B, C, D, and F, okay? What we did was we got um, E, S, and N, okay? So we're going go go to go easy. We're going to kind of go kindergarten steps today. Um, e is excellent. I'm doing very well, very well in this one. S would be satisfactory. And if you give yourself an N, okay, that's a, that's a needs improvement, okay? So the first one, love. How do you know? Did a little self-test. Well, here's a couple questions. Are you quick to respond when somebody else needs encouragement? How tender is your heart towards God these days? Do you find it easy to defer to the wishes and needs of other people? E-S-N. Joy. How often did you laugh or smile this past week? Pretty good indicator. Do you tend to be critical and negative? Or do you tend to be upbeat and positive? Or when was the last time you did something just for fun? That's kind of a measurement of joy. Peace, are you hopeful and optimistic about the future? How often do you worry about things? Would you describe yourself as contented or discontented? Those are all things that have to do with peace. Patience, how well do you handle it when you're stuck in traffic? Are you understanding when someone is late for an appointment? Do noisy children get on your nerves? (laughs) Those are all things that have to do with patience, (laughs) kindness. Are you the type of person that others tend to call for help because they know you're there? Are you a sympathetic listener when someone needs someone to talk to? How about goodness? How generous are you with your time or or your material resources? Do you feel compassion for those who are weak and needy? Faithfulness. Would people that you know say that you're dependable? Do you complete a task promptly or do you tend to procrastinate it? Gentleness. How often do you make blunt remarks that hurt someone else's feelings? Are you able to confront someone but do it tenderly and with love and compassion? Self-control. There's a good one. Have any bad habits? Do you tend to give in to your impulses? How often do you say something that you wish you could take back? There's a little bit of a measurement there for you. How did you do on that? How many going through that list feel like a complete failure? (laughs) How many are sitting next to a complete failure? No, I won't do that. You see, these are not behavioral changes. Really, they are issues of the heart. They are character issues. And those are the kinds of things that God is trying to do in you. Your failures do not nullify God's grace. Your failures do not catch God by surprise. They don't. Do you remember that Jesus told Peter the night ahead of time that before the cock crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times? And Peter said, No, I won't. No, I won't. No, I won't. And yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Jesus wasn't surprised at that. You will fail. There is not a parent of a 16-year-old in this room that's not expect someday to get that phone call. You know. Your 16-year-old brand-new driver eventually is going to call you one of these days. It's inevitable. You're going to get that call. Dad, I had an accident. You know it's coming. I remember my very first accident. I was surprised at my parents' reaction because I thought they were going to kill me. It was my very first day at work, 16 years old, had my driver's license for like 5 months. I'm on my way to work, driving through San Francisco, uncontrolled intersection, I was going this this direction, I turned up, I ended up in this direction, sitting on top of a fire hydrant. (laughs) And I thought, my mom's going to kill me, and I called, and all she said was, okay, where are you? (laughs) Because she knew, (laughs) it's going to happen. I took that test, I passed, I answered every question correctly when I took the test. I took the driving test. Passed with flying colors. But I, m- my parents knew eventually it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's going to fail because no amount of knowing all the rules of the road and no amount of taking tests and passing them make up for experience. And I'm a little bit better driver because of having that accident. Not much, but a little bit. Because if nothing else, I'm more aware of other drivers around me. You see, failure is part of the learning curve. They don't catch God by surprise. In fact, you will fail. And your failures will be your fault and no one else's. But God knows that. Paul said, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. He said, if in all of this, it becomes apparent that I'm a lawbreaker... What's new? <laughs> I've been that way all of my life. Does that mean that Christ is promoting sin that's it's okay just go? No. But he's saying it's part of the learning curve. So as a church, how can we be open to that? How can we help and encourage people along the way? How can we become encouragers in grace instead of enforcers of the law? Well, I think we need to culture. And in culture, values of honesty with each other and vulnerability and acceptance. Very often you will hear those who teach and preach here at Northgate talk about their own foibles, their own mistakes, their own struggles. Because we're all failing, but we're failing forward, as John Maxwell puts it. Failure is a part of the learning curve. The church in Austin, Texas... John Burke's a pastor. They have a motto in that church. In fact, he wrote a book, and the title of the book is the motto of their church, No Perfect People Allowed. That's not a bad motto. We're all in process. It comes from the inside out, and it happens through our successes as well as our failures. Because if you don't have it set in your mind by now, understand this, transformation depends on God's grace completely and totally. There is simply no other way. Paul wrote, I don't set aside the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. If there was some other way of doing it, don't you think God would have thought of that? He said there was no other way. And there is no other way. But we tend to overestimate the power of self-help and underestimate the power of God's grace. And when we do that, we end up compartmentalizing religious and moral behavior... When in truth, grace encompasses all of life. In fact, it is life. It's not just a minor adjustment or a, or a little touch-up to my already pretty good life. It's something completely new. When I was working for my dad, we did this remodel job on this mansion. I No other way to describe it. It was a mansion in Piedmont, three stories tall, huge place. I mean, just... Unbelievable. Gorgeous place. We did this almost remodeled thing from beginning to end. We got towards the end of the job, and, and the owner um, said, you know, I noticed the other day up on the third floor there, up at the rain gutters, there seems to be a little bit of dry rot. We probably should take a look at that while we're at it. So we got up on the scaffold and, you know, peeled back, and sure enough, it wasn't just dry rot. It was termites. And they weren't confined. If you know anything about termites, they don't start up in the eaves. <laughs> Termites went all the way down, all three stories, to the foundation. Now, I remember the look on the, the owner's face when my dad told him the bad news and how bad it really was and how it wasn't just going to be a little repair job. It was going to be like stripping the whole thing down to foundation and rebuilding it all back up. And just looking at his face like, how much is that going to cost? See, the bad news is we all got termites. We all got termites to the foundation. The good news is... <laughs> That Christ rebuilds us from the foundation up and the repair bill has been paid in full. Paul describes it this way. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's freedom. That's freedom. That's the freedom to really change. See... Christ doesn't promise just a little touch-up. He says, it's a brand new life. It's something completely new. Message paraphrase puts it this way. My ego is no longer central. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before your eyes or have your good opinion, and I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me, and I'm not going to go back on that. See, that's the truth. And it begins with the freedom to admit our faults and our mistakes and our failures and our struggles. It begins there. And it is a lifetime of learning to let go, of doing things my way and accepting God's way. And understand that in that is life. Because when I give Him my faults and my weaknesses, what He he offers me is forgiveness and restoration. When I yield to Him my rights, my securities, my values... When I give those things up, He gives me life as a gift. And every moment of every day is a new adventure in this life. It is a life of transformation. Little by little, over a period of time, I begin to look back and, and I begin to realize, you know what? I really am becoming a little bit more loving than I used to be. I have a, I have a greater sense of, of completeness and joy than I ever had that I'm actually becoming a little more patient with others than I once was. Because every moment and every day, God is renewing me. And it's not a formula, folks. There's a mystery to it all. There's a learning to abide in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Doctors Townsend and Cloud wrote a book, How People Grow. I want to close with this. They write, There are two basic ways to motivate people to change. The religious way and the reality way. In the religious way, we tell people they should do the right thing because it is the right thing and it would be wrong to, do, to not do the right thing. But being right has never been a very strong motivator for people to change. They have always been more interested in doing things their way than the right way. The other problem with the religious way is that the human response to should. When we tell people they should do this or that, because it is right, they naturally rebel. Paul tells us, give up this approach. And he reaffirms the reality way. He doesn't tell people to do the right thing just to be good or because it's right. He tells them to do it so that they will live. And it's truly amazing to see what happens in people's lives when they shift from seeing the right way as something they should do and seeing it as the only way they could have life. They see honesty not just as a virtue, but as the only way that they will ever have intimacy. They see confession and ownership of their faults not as something humiliating and guilt-producing, but as the way to grow and to reach their goals. They see living a life of sexual purity is not something they should do to avoid God's being mad at them, but as the only way to find satisfying love. They see forgiveness not as of others as not the law, but as a path to freedom and reconciliation. In other words these people see that the right way is not some religious rule that God has handed down, but a way of life. For any of us to be motivated to grow, we must be doing things the right way as the only way life is going to work. Otherwise, doing the right way is just so much work and the short term not very gratifying. Like the guy who knows for years that he should get healthy, but never does till he has a heart attack and almost dies. After that, he sees health not as a should, but as a way to stay alive. God gave the Israelites all these religious laws so that their lives would work well and they would prosper. And he does the same for us. This is one of the toughest things to understand. In our own lives, we need to see God's kingdom and righteousness not to be good, but as the way to stay alive. Did you bow your heads with I have found in my own life one of the best ways to tell if I'm trying to do it all by my own effort and my own strength is this overwhelming feeling of frustration, weakness, and I just plain tired. If you're tired this morning, it may be because you're trying to make all these changes by your own strength. And the question is are you tired enough to quit? Maybe you know better, but you just keep falling for it. Just keep slipping back into that old performance mode.
1: Maybe it's because you're
0: frustrated at the pace of change that may or, may or may not be happening in your life. Don't give in. Don't give in to conforming. Don't give in to performance and pleasing other people. Resist it. As a church, let us never give in to that. Never. Instead, let's commit ourselves to cultivating an atmosphere of acceptance and honesty and vulnerability with each other and patience with each other. Not only for individual good, but for the health of this church family. Together. Let's agree to let God do His transformation work. And let's be encouragers for each other along the way. Instead of enforcers and demanders of behavior. And Let's just simply trust God's grace and His life-giving power. If you've never taken that first step of faith, the good news this morning is it's never too late to start. All it is is a simple admission Lord I've been doing this on my own And it just ain't working And I've made enough mistakes Along the way To know that's the case And what I need Is your forgiveness And what I need Is your life It's me from the inside out Let's agree together In this prayer Lord We want to change We want Your character To be formed In our lives We want people to look at us and and how we live our lives out genuinely in front of them and and somehow see a glimpse of you in all of it. So that they would discover the life that you have for them and so that we would fully live the life you have for us, the life that you designed for the creation of the world. So today we admit our faults and our mistakes and our failures once again. Once again we ask your forgiveness. Once again, we ask for the power of your spirit to wash us clean, to take us down to the foundation and rebuild us, not by our own effort, but by the power of your spirit at work in us. And then just teach us each day what that means and how to respond a little bit better to the promptings of your spirit and our understandings of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name.